Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Thanks again, Tim, and thanks for the invitation. Um, so I'm really kind of happy to present this particular paper for a couple of reasons. Um, when Professor um, Matthews asked me for topics, this was back in October, I think, and this paper was only a manuscript at that time, and uh, it's not common to present published work in a seminar, but by our luck, it was accepted and published since then, so that's why I gave the citation here. So if you're interested, you can actually find this online. Um, the other reason uh, that I really am happy to present this particular paper is because, so I assume some of you guys are econ majors. How many of you guys are econ or hoping to be econ, thinking about it? Oh, wow, not many. Okay. <laughs> I was an econ major as an undergraduate, and I sometimes character, characterized myself at the time as an unexcited economics major. It was not my first choice. I kind of fell into it because I started out as an art major and a math major, and those two just made my brain kind of not work well, two sides of the brain. And so I kind of went into economics at, on the advice of a friend. And you know, I was doing the courses and doing okay, but I was not excited about it until my senior year. And I took a course in economics of law. This was 1980, so a long time ago. And that was not a course that was regularly available in those days in undergrad econ departments probably one of the few in the country at that time. It's now a much more standard course. But that course changed my life because it opened my eyes to the power of economics to understand behaviors in realms outside of what we normally think of as the subject matter of economics. So when you take economics as, a, as an economics major, you know, you study markets and you study unemployment and you study inflation and all that. I find all that stuff really boring. Um, but when it was applied to a non-market context, to law, like a field, you say, what does that, that have to do with economics? Well, it turns out it has a lot to do with it. And it really sheds um, a really different and interesting light on various aspects of law. And likewise, other fields of study that you would think are un, not economic in nature, such as religion. And this paper kind of is at the intersection of economics and religion and law. And it's part of a larger project that I've been engaged in with my colleague, Mateen Jaskel, who's a really good economic historian and applied econometrician. And so we've been embarked in the, probably the last 10 years on this research agenda of economics and religion and trying to understand how those two you know, institutions, two of the most important um, you know, fields of study that, for understanding human behavior, how they relate to one another. And how does religion and state relate to each other? Um, you know, two 
institutions that date back to the beginnings of human civilization. And they've had a very uneasy, at times, relationship. Sometimes a very cozy relationship. Sometimes they're kind of neutral to each other. And you know, what kind of explains that, that odd relationship between them? So here we're, in particular, this particular paper is thinking about how that relates to economics of law and the economics of crime in particular. So how, how does all that work? Well, if you think about what one of the functions of religion, even in modern society, right, it is to restrain people from be bad behavior, right? If you're, if you're a religious believer, then you have a conscience or you believe that there's some kind of divine retribution awaiting you if you behave badly and that restrains your behavior. And that's a good thing for society, right? Society benefits from that. And so we can imagine that having, a, you know, a, at least some people in society, you know, having a religious belief, it's not only good for them personally in their own, you know, view of themselves and their destiny and so forth, but it also benefits society because they're not going to be criminals. They're not going to you know, engage in bad behavior. They're not going to cheat on their spouse or their business partner, even if they know they can't be detected. So um, this is the approach we're taking here. We're going to use some of the tools from the economics of crime and some simple game theory. So I, I'm you know, kind of a trigger warning here. There will be a little bit of math, but not much. So hopefully you know, the intuition will be enough to explain what's going on. In particular, we're going to be looking at this idea of, of redemption or forgiveness of sins, which is a component of nearly all religious traditions. So what does all this have to do you know, with each other? How does all this fit together? So we begin by noting that most religious traditions believe in some kind of omniscient deity. And this can, as I said, form a very powerful deterrent of bad behavior because of this notion of the afterlife, right? Whatever your conception of the afterlife is, we all kind of hope that there is one and that we're going there. And it is that hope and expectation that can serve as a really powerful incentive mechanism. And in fact, there are two really attractive features of this. If we think about that as compared to, say, ordinary law enforcement as preventing crime, why would this be a better way? Well, for two reasons. First of all, Believers, I say, are endowed with the currency with which they will pay any penalty, right? In other words, you have this afterlife to lose. So when you're born and, you know, whatever your religious tradition, you say, this is what you have awaiting you if you behave well. And if you don't, we're going to take it away from you. All right? So we're already giving you the currency that you're going to use to pay any, for any bad behavior. That's very different than, let's say, a criminal fine, right? If I'm... If I have no money, then a criminal fine is not going to be much of a threat to me because I have nothing to pay you, right? So you're going to have to imprison me as the only alternative. So I know that I'm going to be able to get away with some stuff. So that's one thing. The other is the certainty of apprehension, right? If you are a believer, then you know that no matter what you do and whether it's observable or not, you're going to be seen and punished. So that also solves the costliness of apprehension in a criminal context. So these are two really good attributes of religion as a deterrent of bad behavior. The disadvantage is that you need to get people indoctrinated. They have to become believers to, to internalize this belief, right? And that's never going to be 100% effective. There's always going to be those who are not religious and therefore they can kind of prey on everybody else, right? Just the bad actors out there. So for that reason, you know, I would never argue and probably has never been true in human history that religion alone 
will restrain bad behavior. There's always going to be a role for secular law to deal with these people that are non-believers. But to the extent that religion can take on a lot of that role, it's going to lower the cost of law enforcement, right? So the Old Testament and other mythological traditions portray the emergence of the idea of individual responsibility. In, in ancient times, there was this idea of collective responsibility that kind of um, determined people's culpability for bad behavior. That is, the community was responsible for the behavior of any individual. And if you think about you know, mythological traditions or biblical stories and so on, right, that the whole community or the whole city would be punished for the sins of a few. Sort of even the story of Noah is like that, or Sodom and Gomorrah, right? If there's one or two sinners, we're going to destroy the city. That's a pretty radical and harsh kind of punishment. And so the Old Testament, gradually as time went on, and I'm not a biblical scholar by any means, but gradually there was this movement toward individual responsibility, which we think of as a more modern notion, right? That punishing people for the behaviors of others strikes us as very undesirable, very bad thing. And so individual responsibility is kind of a modern notion. And also a modern notion is this idea of redemption, a kind of a second chance, right? And that again, that's sort of a New Testament story, right? The New Testament kind of created this idea of redemption, and not only redemption, but free redemption, right? That's the good news of the New Testament. And, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian tradition, so that's what I know, but it's true in other religions as well. I'm not picking on one particular religion. But if you think about the parable of the prodigal son, right, and that's going to be kind of a theme throughout this paper, so let me just remind you what that story was, right? This is a parable from Luke in the New Testament that is meant to represent the idea that redemption is there for anyone, and it's free. So a man had two sons, and he said to them, you can either stay with me or I'll give you your inheritance now, and you can go off on your own. And so one son did that. He went off on his own, took his inheritance, and he squandered it. And he came back, you know, a short time later, poor, destitute, beg, begging his father simply to take him back as a servant, you know, repentant, sorry I did this. And the father, instead of, you know, scolding him and taking him back as a servant, he embraced him and restored him to the family on equal terms with his brother who had remained. Right? So the brother who remained was kind of pissed off about this, right? But... The, the lesson is that if you repent, that's all you need to do. You don't need to do any atonement. I didn't, you know, we didn't require him to put in years of labor to atone. He, he just had to say, I'm sorry. And he got forgiveness for nothing. And that's really the message of the, of the New Testament, right? So the problem that that creates, though, is what economists call moral hazard. If I know I can go off and live a really crappy life and then just come on my deathbed and confess and I get full redemption, then what stops me from going out and being a bad person? Right? What stops the prodigal son from going off and doing it in the first place when I know I can just come back? So there's really bad incentives with free redemption. Right? It creates this moral hazard problem. And modern criminology confronts a similar trade-off. Right? How do you balance the threat of harsh punishment as a deterrent up front? Like, I'm going to, you know, I promise if you do something bad, I'm going to throw the book at you. I'm going to put you away forever. But then they do it, and you, and you forgive them. You say, you know, we've got to rehabilitate you. We've got to give you a second chance, right? Can you see that there's an important trade-off there, right? 
that you want to threaten harsh punishment, and your parents maybe have done this with you, right? Threaten harsh punishments, but they know, you know they won't carry it out. And so that gives you some leeway to do some bad things, right? So you should listen to your parents. Um, and this kind of trade-off manifests itself in the economics of crime literature that began with the famous paper by Gary Becker, 1968, so just about 50 years ago. An economist named Gary Becker, who was a Nobel Prize winner, published this paper on the economics of crime and kind of laying out what is an optimal law enforcement mechanism. And he focused on optimal deterrence. And so he was a big advocate of this threatening of harsh punishment. And that's the way to keep people from behaving badly. But if you look at the way the, that actual criminal justice is administered, it doesn't follow very closely to Becker's prescriptions because it maintains this idea of a second chance and proportional punishments and you know, just punishments and so on. And these two things don't sit easily next to each other. And that same kind of trade-off is what we're going to kind of trace here in terms of thinking about different redemption regimes or different theories of redemption in, in Christian and other traditions. The other thing that I'll mention here is this idea of marginal deterrence. So George Stiegler, who was another Nobel Prize winner, in his critique of Becker's story, mentioned this idea of marginal deterrence. The other problem with really harsh punishments is if they don't deter, then they create, again, a bad incentive with regard to carrying out future crimes. So think about the following situation. I'm a kidnapper. I kidnap somebody for ransom. I know that the punishment for kidnapping is death. Why would I not then go ahead and kill my victim rather than turn them loose? Because that might make it easier for me to be caught. Right? So marginal deterrence requires that you not punish that first crime at its maximal amount so that if the guy does turn around and commit the second act, you have, still have something you can do to them. Right? So that's the idea of marginal deterrence. And marginal deterrence is really closely related, and it turns out, to this idea of redemption or rehabilitation. So giving a second chance is actually a way to stop people who have already committed a crime for whatever reason from going on a crime spree, right? We're trying to get them to um, change their ways. And marginal deterrence has very much that same kind of notion to it. So free redemption removes the cost of initial crimes and allows you to shift it backward in time, but it has this marginal deterrent thing. So the trade-off is, how do you punish you know, initial crimes versus later crimes? It's a really a difficult kind of balance to strike as opposed to um, you know, trying to, you know, are we, we going to try and you know, just scare you so much that you won't commit the initial crime, or are we going to leave something available so that we can stop you from becoming a career criminal? It's a really difficult problem. So the trick is we're going to demonstrate here, and I'm spending a lot of time trying to give intuition here so when we get to the theory, if you don't quite follow the details, hopefully you'll, you'll get the point of it. So the trick we're going to show is that you need to devise a scheme that punishes initial crimes to some extent, that's the initial stick that I'm threatening, but you want to hold out the carrot of redemption to prevent future crimes, to, to give the possibility of marginal deterrence. And that's where this idea of penance comes in.
right? So penance is the price of redemption. Remember, the New Testament said the price of redemption should be zero. But earlier traditions, in the Jewish tradition, for example, they still have the idea of penance, right? If you commit a crime, we won't forgive you unless you do some kind of penance, if you do good works or you compensate your victim. That's the price of redemption that's not zero. And we're going to argue that that's, in fact, a very good structure to create because it balances this moral hazard versus marginal deterrence trade-off. And then at the end of the paper, which I probably won't get to, we talk about what are the implications of this theory for the history of the Catholic Church and Christianity and, and the emergence of Protestantism and, and you know, the Protestant Reformation and so forth. And there's some really interesting um, uh, theological history there that probably we won't get to. But if you're interested, again, you can track down the paper and read about it. But I want to just try, so my main message here is going to try and show you how I can use a really simple game theory model to address this question. And I'm going to just quickly go through the, the, this religious stuff. We did, you know, have to put in some uh, background about different notions of redemption in, the, in religious tradition. So i just give you a quote here. Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism all appear to encourage forgiveness irrespective of whether the offender expresses contrition. In other words, free redemption. All of those traditions seem to have it. Judaism, on the other hand, maintains clearly defined rules for when a victim should forgive. A victim is obligated to forgive only after the offender has expressed contrition. In other words, gone through penance of some kind. So this is from some religious scholars. All right, um, now I'm going to skip this stuff. All right, let's just go to the theory, because I want to make sure I get through some of this. So how do economists address a question like this? Well, game theory is an incredibly powerful methodology that has been developed in the 20th century, basically the second half of the 20th century, to deal with strategic behaviors of individuals interacting with each other. And game theory really, it was invented by, you know, a mathematician and economist back in the 30s, I think. You, probably Tim knows better. But it was really uh, able to become extremely useful with the work of John Nash. And for those of you who don't know, John Nash was an economist who uh, was, actually was a mathematician who wrote some really important papers in the early 1950s and then kind of dropped out of sight and everyone kind of thought he had died. But in fact, he was um, experiencing severe mental illness and reemerged in the 1990s and you know, became an active scholar again. And there's a really good movie about that called A Beautiful Mind. So um, I commend that to you. Russell Crowe's in it, Jennifer Connelly. It's a really good movie. It was based on a biography. They don't get all the economics right, but it's really good. It's really interesting. And without John Nash, we wouldn't have been able to use uh, game theory to study any of these problems. So he sort of opened the door to how to make this a workable approach. And it, and it can be very simple. We're going to use our extremely simple setup here to try and understand the incentives of someone who is engaging in certain kinds of decision making throughout their life about whether to be a good or a bad person. So how do we do that? Well, we think about a dividing a person's life into two periods, when you, say when you're young and when you're old. It doesn't matter how long you know, those periods are. 
And we're going to assume that in, in a society there are four different, at least initially, there are four different types of people in a given society. There are people who are just unredeemable sinners, just bad people, and they're going to sin no matter what. We're also going to assume that there are redeemable sinners, like the prodigal son. That is, make bad decisions and decide, you know, I've got to change my life and I'm willing to reform. So there are people like that, right? And then there are people who are purely righteous and they always do the right thing no matter what. And then the last category are just sort of rational people that just say, do a straight up cost-benefit analysis. Am I going to be better off sinning or am I going to be better off not sinning? And I'm going to compare the benefits and costs. So there are these four different types of people. I'll show you how we can actually pick them out in an endogenous way in a little bit. But for now, we'll just assume there are defined categories. So the two types, unredeemables and righteous individuals, there's nothing an economist can say about their behavior because it's predetermined, right? I can't explain what they do because they've already decided and throughout their life they're going to do this one thing irrespective of consequences. So there's no way that economics can explain them. But the other two types we can think about. The people who are redeemable we're going to worry about because they are someone, they are people who can experience a kind of uh, rehabilitation in their life and incentives may matter for them. And then rational people, of course, incentives matter by definition. So we're going to just focus at least at first on those two types. All right. So what are the incentives involved here? Well, it's this idea of an afterlife or salvation. There's some gain to, to people of, of having that in their future, right? I get some benefit. This is a psychic benefit, but we suppose that you can, you know, think about it in utility terms or monetary terms, whatever. I get a gain from knowing that I have a chance to go to heaven. That's all that means. And that's what the magnitude or quantity A is. At the same time, I'm going to get some benefit out of being, you know, committing bad acts. Right? I can get a monetary gain or I just, you know, can avoid um, having to do things I don't want to do. I can lie to people. I can cheat. I can do stuff like that. And there's some benefit of that. That's, so the gain from that is G. All right? And we're going to assume that the value of the afterlife is sufficient to discourage you from committing sins throughout your life. So if I commit sins in my young life, I get G. If I commit sins in my old life, I get G again. So the most I'm going to get is 2G. So I get, if I'm a bad person throughout my life, I get 2G. If I'm a good person throughout my life, I get A. And so if A is big enough, then I am deterred from committing sins by the hope of retaining salvation, right? Isn't that kind of what religion is about? And this is just trying to formalize it a little bit, put it into, you know, symbols. But that's really what it is, right? Those of you who go to church, you're told every week, you know, be a good person, and you have, you know, an afterlife. That's all this is. And A, it's got to be big enough, right, to deter you from, from all the goodies you can get by being a bad person, right? So religion can adopt different ways of structuring the A. That's what I mean by religious regimes here. It can be unforgiving, and I'll tell you what they all mean in a second. They can be unforgiving, it can involve free redemption, or it can involve redemption with penance. These are three different kinds of ways that we can think about religion structuring itself. So what do they mean? Well, first the unforgiving. Unforgiving religion is a very harsh one, maybe like the Puritans or something, right? They said, you commit one sin, you're cooked, right? You're going to hell, and there's no way to redeem yourself. So you better be good. 
throughout your life. Right? That's really harsh, but it's very powerful too, right? So faced with that, what would be the decision making of one of these rational individuals? So I'm sitting here as a young person, I've just been indoctrinated into this, I'm going to do a mental calculation of costs and benefits. So what would that look like? So here's a very simple way to think about that. This is called a game tree. And it explains my choices, right? Game tree is just, I have choices. So the beginning, that's my choice as a young person. And then these are my choices as an older person. And so as a young person, I can either sin or not. And once I sin, now I become an old person and I have the same choice again. If I don't sin, I have the same choice again. So this is basically all the possibilities that I face throughout my life. And at the bottom of it, it shows the payoffs that I get from any of these combinations of choices. So if I sin in both periods of my life, I'm going to get 2G, but then I'm going to hell, so I don't get the afterlife. The afterlife is taken back from me. If I sin in the first period and then I don't sin in the second, I'm also, you know, under this really harsh regime. As soon as I commit that first sin, I lose A completely. So I might as well just, uh, so we'll see that I would never follow that route. Because why? There's no gain from doing it. I forgo the other G. Whereas if I choose no sin in my first period and then no sin again, I go to heaven. If I no sin, sin. Now I'm, you know, lost heaven. I just get the G from the one time. So what is the rational thing for people to do? What is the rational path that they're going to follow through this game tree? Well, the way that you would examine this is by starting with your second period and looking at each of these what are called sub-games or sub-decisions. And if I'm sitting here, however I got here, if I'm here, what would I do? Well, obviously 2G is bigger than G, so I would never do no sin if I committed the first sin, right? If I, if I cheated on my, you know, my, one of my course exams as a young person, I'm going to cheat on my wife as an old person. Because why? Why not? I'm already going to hell. So I might as well live it up, right? So if I do sin, it's always going to be sin, sin. That would be one possibility. I'll never end up there, right? How about over here? If I do that, now what's my choice? Well, I'm going to compare G and A. So if I refrain from sin, should I continue to refrain or should I commit the sec, you know, sin in the second period? And remember I assumed A is bigger than 2G, so that means A is clearly bigger than G. So I would always follow that. So my two options are going to end up being A and 2G. So I'm either going to be sinful in my whole life or I'm never going to sin. Those are my only two choices if I think about this rationally, right? And which am I going to pick? Well, I assume that A is bigger than 2G, so I'm going to go sin... No sin, no sin. So just go to the bottom line here. I already explained all that. So since A is bigger than 2G, we say the equilibrium, that, that's just fancy notation. It means subgame perfect Nash equilibrium. But it basically just means I solved the game the way I just did it. And the outcome is no sin, no sin. So in this really harsh punishment regime, unforgiving, it works for the rational person. Does that make sense? You all see why that is? So if the punishment is threatened and it's harsh enough, it's going to be a good deterrent. So that sounds really good. But what's the problem with it? Well, what about this other character that I talked about, which I call the redeemable person? A redeemable person is someone who maybe made a mistake in their young life and now is ready to reform. And I would really like to give them the chance to do that. 
so that they don't say, well, I've, I've shot it and I might as well just be a sinner the rest of my life. I want to give them an opportunity to reform. So we would like to deter that first timer from committing further sin. But that won't happen here. Because that person will be sitting here, so they sin by accident, let's say, or whatever. And now they're sitting here and they say, I'd really like to reform, but there's no gain from it. So I might as well just continue to sin, right? So there's no, that's the marginal deterrence thing, right? There is no marginal deterrence here. And so the unforgiving regime is really good for those people who are starting out as rational calculators, but it's really bad for those who end up here. And so we don't have marginal deterrence. And again, you might say that's exactly what it was like in Puritan New England, right? The Puritans were sort of like, once you did it, you're done, right? So there was no reason not to just continue sinning. So maybe there's something better than that. So let's check this free redemption as the alternative, kind of the other side of the coin. Let's go to the New Testament story and say, wow, we really care about redemption. So we're going to actually make it really easy for that second person to reform. So in this case, we're going to argue that under this regime, the afterlife can be recaptured for, for initial sinners as long as you just don't sin in the second period. So this is the prodigal son story, right? Just come back and everything's forgiven and you don't have to do anything else. And in that case, it's the same game tree, except this is the only difference. See what happened? I added the A there. So sin, now you redeem, you're redeemed, you can recover the A. And so now you get marginal deterrence. Because A plus G is bigger than 2G under my assumption, right? That's the same thing as saying A bigger than G, and I already know that's true. Right? So th that's, that's really good. But what's the problem with this? So the redeemable person, that's really good. So if sin in period one, no sin in two. That's really good for that person. But what about the rational guy who started doing the calculation in day one? That person now says, I might as well be a sinner too in the first period because I can, it's free for me to recover it so I can now get that extra G. I can sin in my early life, and then I can pretend to be repentant. So the sub-game perfect Nash equilibrium, the overall game now is sin, no sin, for everybody. So it's kind of like, you know, I got this marginal deterrence for the redeemable guy, but it kind of gave the incentive for the prodigal son to leave. So these two regimes, unforgiving and free redemption, kind of, which is more important, giving initial deterrence to the rational person or having marginal deterrence? I can't get both, right? Or can I? Well, that's going to be my third proposed regime. So 1205, is that the, okay. All right, we're doing all right. So redemption with penance is the third one that I'm going to talk about. So can we improve upon the pre pre preceding regimes by introducing some kind of penance for early sins? In other words, have a, 
not have no redemption, but at least attach a positive price to it. So let P be that price that has to be incurred. So in other words, if you're a first period sinner, you can't just say, I'm sorry, and that's good enough. You have to say you're sorry, and you have to spend P. What is P? Well, it can be literal penance, like, you know, here's a bunch of prayers you've got to say every day, or good works, you've got to go volunteer your time at the church or with the poor or something, and or you have to compensate your victim. So these are all various forms that it can take. And the, the key here is that it's costly to the sinner. It doesn't really matter if P is received by somebody, it's costly to the sinner. All right, so let's see how this works. So now, this is the sub-game, the left-hand branch of someone who committed sin in one and now he's sitting there. So this is a first period sinner. What are his options? Well, before we only had these two. But now, we're adding this one. So if I choose no sin and don't pay penance, I just get G. If I choose no sin and then pay the penance, I can recover the A. So in order to recover the A, I gotta pay P. Right? And I haven't yet said what P is or the magnitude, but that's what we gotta figure out. So if we think about, again, these two types, you got the period one sinner who wants to reform, and then you got the rational person. So the period one sinner will refrain from sin in period two, that is marginal deterrence, if that penance outcome, remember, A plus G minus P is bigger than not sinning in the first place, or, or sorry, sinning again, right? So we'll go back to the picture. You can, can you see that the person would never choose that one, right? Because this is always better. So it's between this and that, and so I'm just saying, what are the conditions for that to be bigger than that? That puts a bound on P. And the bound is a lower bound. P cannot be too big, or else the price of redemption is too high. So I need to make redemption cheap enough for this redeemable person to buy it. And that's the condition for it. All right? So that puts an upper bound. I can't make it too onerous to recover the afterlife in order to get people to be willing to purchase it. But now I want to worry about the moral hazard for the first guy. I don't want to encourage the prodigal son to leave. I want to try and get that person as a rational person to stay. So I want to make sure the rational person will choose no sin at the beginning and follow on with no sin in the second period as well. And the condition for that is, turns out to be this. So that puts a lower bound. So I, I guess I said lower bound. This puts an upper bound on P. This puts a lower bound on P. So think of it this way, right? If I make redemption too cheap, then everyone's going to go for it. So I want to make it so the first period guy says, wow, if I want to get redeemed, it's going to cost me P, and I don't want to have to pay that if it's too high. So I've got to make P big enough so it discourages the prodigal son from leaving in the first place. But I want to make it cheap enough for the prodigal son who does leave to come back. So can you see the game I'm trying to play here? I'm trying to balance these two incentives. And so I have a lower bound, on, an upper bound on P, and a lower bound on P. Does it work? Is there a P that will satisfy these two? Well, they're compatible if this condition is satisfied. And again, don't worry if you're not following it. But that is satisfied by my assumption. 
So this will work. And the reason it works is because what I'm doing here is saying, I'm assuming that A is big enough to deter sins throughout your life, but I got to partition it up so that taking away some of A is a punishment, and I can't take it all away now, and I can't take it all away later. I got to take away some now and some later to keep the incentives right for both the person not to become a sinner in the first place, but also to have redemption as a possibility for some who accidentally sinned. And the right calibration of P is going to exactly partition this A in such a way that this will work. And so of the three regimes we talked about, this redemption with penance seems to be the best one in terms of incentives. And as I said, the, you know, the Catholic Church actually arrived at that point in the early years of the first century, uh, early years of the first millennium. So just to summarize here what we're saying, redemption with penance achieves both initial deterrence of sin among rational individuals, that is people who are fully calculating throughout their lives, and marginal deterrence of these what I'm calling redeemable types. And the key is the appropriate apportionment of A over the person's lifetime. So this implies that redemption cannot be free, but nor can the price be too high. So it's got to be some kind of finitely positive number. So let's generalize this a little bit because I've, I mean, I think that's a good story. I hope you find it compelling. But I had to make some assumptions about people's types, and now I want to relax that a little bit. So the preceding analysis assumes that A is large enough to achieve this outcome, but generally A is something that is endogenous, right? Or it varies across people. Like, how strongly do people believe in the afterlife? Well, some do and some don't. That was, remember, the problem back at the beginning is I need to indoctrinate people. And there's going to be some people who are going to be really fervent believers, and some people are going to be weak believers, and some people are going to be non-believers. And I can think about that as being a continuum of A. If I'm a non-believer, A is zero. If I'm a firm believer, it's really big. And some people are going to be kind of in between those two. Like, I'm a kind of believer, right? So we can generalize this model, and here, you know, a little bit of a math alert coming, but again, I'm going to try and explain intuitively what, what the point is. We're going to assume that A varies across the population from the really high believers who meet my initial definition to non-believers. And if you think about it, my kind of reflexive sinners are the non-believers, and my redeemable sinners are going to be the ones with the A kind of in the middle. So the various types that I described earlier kind of fit along this continuum. And so now I want to say, you know, which, which of these three regimes I just described is going to be welfare maximizing? And when I say welfare maximizing, I mean maximizes or, well, in this context, minimizes the amount of harm that bad behavior, you know, imposes on society. Because these bad acts that we're talking about are really things that are harmful. Otherwise, we wouldn't think of them as, har as sins, right? Again, it could be stealing, it could be cheating, it could be lying, it could be any of these things. Right, they hurt somebody. And it doesn't have to be monetary harm. So that's what the H is. The H is, and I'm assuming that these are all net harm actions. Because sometimes sin does create benefits as well. I mean, um, but on net, they're harmful. So how will different believers behave? All right, so the first group is the people that I originally assumed were kind of reflexive sinners. So they're the really low A's, and they're not deterrable no matter what. 
So if your A is really low, you haven't been sufficiently indoctrinated, there's nothing that religion is going to do to stop you. So we don't really have much we can do with them. What we're interested in, however, are these kind of middle believers and then the strong believers. The middle believers, A's fall between these two bounds and the strong believers above that. And what's interesting here is that what we would ideally like to do is individualize the religious re regime to the person's type. In other words, if you're a really strong believer, we would like to use this really harsh, um, unforgiving regime because you are amenable to that, right? So if you're a strong believer, we would really like to make you know, this threat really strong and say, any sin and you're done for, and say, okay, okay, I'm convinced. Whereas for these middle believers, we would like to be more lenient with them and say, well, you know, if you commit a sin, we'll give you a chance at redemption. And in economics, we would call that price discrimination, right? We would say, so again, this a lot of jargon on here and so on. Um, Just think of it this way. It, it's not possible to implement a targeted religious regime in the way I just described it. Because I can't look out in the audience and say, okay, you guys are the high A guys, and you guys are the, low a, low, the middle A guys. So for you guys, I'm going to adopt a really harsh, you know, any of you sin, you're done, you're out. You guys, I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourselves. Right? Can you imagine a religion trying to do that? It would not be possible, right? It would be, seem very unfair for one thing, but, per, but frankly, you just couldn't implement it because I can't tell what's in your heart and in your mind, right? I don't know what your A is. So it's not possible to do that. The only way religion can operate is to adopt a single price for everybody. So in an economic setting, you know, um, if monopolists can price discriminate, that means they would charge different people different prices. And sometimes they can get away with that, but most of the time they can't because they can't tell who the one's willing to pay more than others. So they're stuck having to charge a single price for everyone. That's what's happening here because they can't distinguish people. So as I said, ideally we would like to tailor the price of redemption for individuals. We would like to set it, have redemption free for the middle believers, the moderate believers, and we would like it to be very harsh for the strong believers. So we would like to have it zero for the other guy and above G and you know, really harsh, doesn't really matter how harsh it is because no one will commit sins in that group. But this type of price discrimination requires knowledge of people's beliefs and in reality we can't do that. So therefore the, the religion has got to choose between sort of the two extremes, either free or costly redemption depending on which one is going to maximize overall welfare. And we know that there's going to be some inefficiencies here. And so, brace yourselves, this is the condition. <laughs> so, this is the condition under which free redemption is desirable. And I'm not even gonna try and explain it, but that's what the mathematical definition of it is. So the left-hand turn is the value of afterlife that is recovered by people when they redeem themselves under free redemption. And the right-hand term is the harm to society from the moral hazard created for these you know, rational individuals who under free redemption will do some sinning. So it's sort of like, you know, believe it or not, I think this condition epitomizes the prodigal son story, right? This is the benefit of allowing the prodigal son back. This is the cost that it will create in terms of incentives for other people by making it too easy to redeem yourself. 
And as long as that condition is satisfied, it'll be a good thing to do. So when might this be satisfied? Well, I can't observe A or G or H or any of these things, but I can look at this kind of distribution function. I could say, this is going to be satisfied, this will be bigger, if the weight of the distribution is heavily in this low range or this moderate range. And it's going to be better here if the weight is in the high end. So if I have a population of moderate believers, this condition is, that is strongly, yeah, almost done, five minutes. So, yeah, and I'll, I'll stop with, 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 I just want to get some reaction to this. So just to relate this a little bit, we talk a lot more in the paper about it, relate this to the um, early history of the Catholic Church. When the Catholic Church, first, or the Christian Church really, um, first came into existence in the decades and centuries after you know, the birth of Christ, of course, so the early decades of what we call CE, now the Common Era. Um, most people in the Roman um, Empire were of pagan belief, and Christianity offered a kind of an alternative religion, and the way that economists and sociologists talk about religion now is through, as, as religion markets, believe it or not. And, you know, religions are competing for customers just like any other business, right? And so one of the arguments that's made, been made about the rise of Christianity in the early years, which is a really, really interesting and still not fully understood phenomenon, how quickly the Christian church accelerated and by Emperor Constantine, and I'm not sure when he reigned, but he, it, the empire became Christian. Fifth century, something like that, I don't remember exactly. I mean, it's a remarkable story. And one of the arguments that economists and sociologists have made is that one of the ways they did that was by making this a really attractive religion compared to the alternative. And can you see that a low price of redemption is a really attractive thing? And so if I have a lot of people that I'm trying to attract to my new religion, that means a lot of the weight of the population is in this low end, because they're not really strong believers yet. And so that would be a really good time to kind of introduce this free redemption story. It's like, wow, this is really neat religion. I want to join. I can get away with sins as long as I confess, right? And, and that's an argument that's been made out there, right? I'm not sure that how much it's um, accepted amongst traditional, you know, theology scholars, but it's an argument that's been made. And, and our story, I think, fits in with that. I got a lot more here, but I'm going to stop. I think I made my point. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.